Welcome to The Battle, Episode 3 of Taking on the Devil, a podcast celebrating 50 years of The Exorcist. I'm Gina Brandolino, a lecturer of English literature at the University of Michigan. My partner in this podcast exploring the dark corners of The Exorcist is Gabrielle Thomas, assistant professor in early Christianity and Anglican studies at Candler School of Theology at Emory University, and an ordained priest in the Church of England. In this episode, we dig into the exorcism, which occurs very late in the story, only when all other potential paths of intervention fail and lead inevitably to this only viable option. Two priests perform it, the young, faith-challenged Karis, more willing to see Reagan's problem as psychological than demonic, and old, battle-tested Marin, whom the devil calls to by name when he arrives. The devil they fight uses many names. Any or none may accurately identify it. The exorcism scene wades into deep theological waters and says a lot about what tools and temperaments humans have at their disposal to fight the devil. What works and why does it work? Who is the devil possessing Reagan? How exactly is she exercised and at what cost? Keep listening to learn. So we've done quite a lot of processing about what's going on in The Exorcist and we're now on episode three and we're finally at the battle um, and the actual exorcism that takes place. Um, I thought what was really interesting when I was reading this, um, I very briefly checked on, um, I'm, I think I said in the beginning, I'm a, I'm a Church of England priest um, and we have descriptions and accounts of exorcism. And so I quickly popped on our website and um, I searched around a little bit and I found in our safeguarding section um, a very interesting definition of what exorcism is that matched up um, in some way with, with what we've uh, read about. It says Christian exorcism is a specific act in which imperative appeal to Christ or to the Godhead is made in order to rid a person or place of an evil spirit by which they are possessed. It is the binding and releasing, the casting out or expelling of an evil or malevolent possessing spirit that is not human. Um, and then it goes on to talk about the requirements of uh, formal rites. And um, we could be saying things like the Lord's Prayer, which we actually do see in the book, um, the giving of Holy Communion, um, but the thing that I thought that was fascinating is that it stipulates that for under 18s, it has to be conducted in consultation with a medical professional. Um, and and that, was, that was the thing that really resonated with me when I was thinking about what was going on with Reagan is she's a young girl. Um, and officially, the ruling would be in any church, in terms of the Church of England or the Catholic Church, you just can't go on performing this on a child. Mm-hmm. Adding yet more levels of seriousness to the situation because clearly the child's 
still needs help. Yeah. That's the conundrum, isn't it? Yeah. You're, you know, you can't just go around doing this. But let's hope you've got a medical professional that actually understands there's more than one way of being sick. Yes, yes. And spiritual sickness is its own kind of problem. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And spiritual sickness is sort of what, what we are, um, what we have carved out for our conversation um, today. It, so it takes a long time to get to the exorcism in this book called The Exorcist. In my 340-page book, The Exorcism isn't even mentioned until page 169. And even then, it's only mentioned by doctors. The Exorcism itself doesn't start until page 300. There are 40 pages of exorcism, and that's all in this book. And so it's a really interesting uh, and lopsided... Well, the lopsidedness is its own commentary on how we deal with evil, right? That first we have to fumble with it. Absolutely. For yeah. so long. We have to fumble with it for so long. Let's, let's, uh, can we start by talking about this devil? It's interesting to me that whatever it is, and we'll come back to Marin, but whatever it is that Marin finds in Iraq seems to be a particular demon called Pazuzu. Yep. But then when Reagan is possessed and talks to Father Karras, she claims to be not a demon, but the devil himself, right? So in, in, in my book, Karras says, who are you? And uh, the devil, through Reagan, answers, I'm the devil, says a, a page later, I'm a prince, says two pages later, uh, we are quite a little group inside yeah. Reagan, uh, quite a stunning little multitude, and then later... Um, explaining all this um, to Chris, Father Kara says, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She insists she's the devil himself. Um, and he goes on to say, and that's the same thing as saying you're Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, which I thought was an interesting parallel. Um, but, you know, the, the specificity there is interesting. Um, how does that strike you theologically, the the insistence uh, on the on being the devil? And, like, why are we taking through the Pazuzu sort of like back channel. So I, I guess I was thinking in terms of basically one of um, his primary strategies, certainly through scripture, is deceit. Um, and so far, far better to be introduced at the beginning to a lesser demon and then to build it up than to actually show your it's sort of like if you're playing poker, I guess, you're never going to show your card at the very beginning of the game. Not that I'm a successful poker player at all. Um, but I think it's that sense of, well, there's sort of two levels of deceit because, A, it could be more than one as well. So it could be that there's the devil and a big legion of demons too because there's room for more than one in a person. Or it's one pretending to be all these others. And I'm not sure that we ever fully know whether there's more than one or not. Or whether it's that one thing, this one being, this one entity, um, simply masquerading as as all these other these other things. What I thought was interesting, though, is it sort of matches up at the very beginning, where Marin says um, it was an ancient enemy, and he knew his name, but he'd never seen his face. And that that really, I just kept coming back to that all the way through the book. Is we're not ever going to see this thing's face. We're clearly never going to be able to be certain in in the way that we want certain visual evidence for something. Um, that that's just never going to happen. 
But what I thought was interesting was the, the way that they identify him while both Karis and Meryn, um, while they're doing the exorcism, because they use so many different names. We get the evil one. We get the um, ancient enemy, which we're sort of assuming is the serpent in the Garden of Eden. There's the enemy, just enemy. Then there's the roaring lion. Um, there's Satan. Um, and that reference in, um, in one of the sort of prayers for the exorcism where um, by whose might Satan was made to fall like lightning from heaven, um, referring to the passage in Isaiah where um, the morning star falls from heaven, um, that was later interpreted by Christian theologians as the devil. I think it was actually Origen who was the first Christian theologian who said, I think there's a connection between all these different enemies that we're seeing in scripture. But I thought the fact that he names all of those, and then we've got the reprobate, reprobate dragon on another page, the prince of murderers, um, the ancient serpent and monster, um, and the inventor of every obscenity. And he just kept going on and on and on. And I thought, wow, he's literally picked out every biblical, even vaguely tangential reference um, that might be or might not be, or certainly has been interpreted to be, speaking of the devil. Almost as a case of, well, you won't identify yourself, but I'm going to. Let me tell you how I know who you are, because you're this, you are this, you are this. Um, I may not know you by your face, but I know you by your name. Um, I think there's a song about that in by a certain Rolling Stones band. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it something like you guess my name or something like that? There's a anyway, yeah, yeah. one of the songs yeah. about the devil. And and that really plays that theme all the way through is this figure who shows his card not until he absolutely has to, but you you have this idea that um whilst he's sort of fooling around and having a lot of fun sort of making people guess that actually Merrin does know who he's dealing with um, because he's so, so specific with the different titles that he gives him. I, I thought that was brilliant. I, I couldn't actually think of another name he'd left out. I was sort of sitting there thinking, is there any other reference he could have? And I, I couldn't think of one. Well, uh, this is super interesting, uh, you're, especially uh, you're noticing what Merrin says at the beginning about an, an ancient enemy whose face he's never seen because it's clear that Marin knows it is one being, right? Yeah. And was it Origen, you yep, mentioned, yep. who sort of yep. collected all these and yep. said, hey, guys, there's something more serious going on here, right? So in, in a way, Marin is sort of the practical origin in, in this case, right? Because he's, he's like, I'm not seeing different things here, right? This is very interesting to me because my students really get hung up on the Pazuzu thing, and they want to think this is not the devil, this is just a demon. But the origin approach, the approach of, of this theologian from when? Fourth? Uh, third century, Third yeah. century, yeah. right, is that, no, they're, they're all one, right? All of these names, yes. and then this name has a legion of demons working for him. Mm -hmm. Because the whole, I think one of the titles he gives is Prince of, oh, something. Something. Yeah. He does Prince of Murderers, there yeah. we go. Mm -hmm. um, he's not alone in the sense that, in terms of the, the sort of the storytelling of this figure, is, is he then has an army of demons working for him. Or with him. I mean, I don't know how much evil evil could possibly collaborate with itself. So I, I don't know how that works out in practice. Um, but it's this idea that these different references are referring to one figure, but 
this one figure then commands an army, yeah. which is why he, you know, is super dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Um, because actually he isn't working on his own. Right. He could get any. And I, I was, I'm, I'm really hesitant to say minor demon because I don't think actually there's any sense that um, Pazuzu or any of the others, if if they're or there, just a small are just problem. not a problem, yeah. right? If you possess, right. then whether it's the devil or a demon, it's it's going to be it's not going to yeah. be pleasant. It's not like the demon of sneezes, you know, <laughs> no. or something like that. No, I know? think, and I I think that's possibly one of the things. Certainly, I I was sort of like, hmm, is he making it clear that actually all possession of all demons would, would be a very, very bad thing? Because I think, I'm not sure that we can think of, say, an ontology of evil in the sense that I'm not sure about the hierarchy. Like, is is an evil demon going to be less or more evil than an evil devil? You know, if you're malevolent, I sort of think you're malevolent in the sense that there's no limits here, Right. Yeah. So if you're willing to kill, then I'm not sure what's worse once you get to the end, you know, what what would have been worse for Reagan than dying by this point. Um, if you're willing to take it that far, then I'm not sure you're more evil or less evil than any other demon that's present. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly don't think we got the impression that it's because it's the devil that he'd be willing to do those things as though some other ancient demon wouldn't have been. Yeah, I mean, I think you're spot on in, in pointing out that I've struggled for a long time with this question as, as, as in times that I've taught this story and my students insisting on the, the sort of minor demon. But the idea or, you know, this sort of the origin uh, idea that there is a devil that commands an army that is sort of infinitely and, and, and immediately able to substitute themselves in in a battle right? Yeah. Creates a kind of danger that does seem a lot worse than just a single devil or demon, you know, like a, yeah. these, the devil yeah. himself or any single demon. And I'm thinking about there's a recent um, horror movie called Hereditary in which it is not the devil himself, but very deliberately a devil called Paimon. And Oh, he does plenty of damage, right? Like, he's not, like, you know, just, you know, ripping the screens in a house, you know, or, you know, like, you know, causing mold. You know, like, he does catastrophic evil to a family, and he's just a minor demon. So you're right that we can't categorize. You know, we can't say, well, if he's the devil, that's going to be 20 times worse than if he is some some minor demon. What's interesting to me is that Marin is not interested in any of these distinctions. He no. absolutely, he knows what Origen knew. He's, he knows what you're saying, right? That it doesn't matter. It yeah. doesn't, it does, absolutely does not matter. Yeah. I was really struck by his absolute determination to just, I guess if you were an actor, it would be to stick to the script. <laughs> yeah. Because he's, he's just not going to get sidetracked into the who are you kinds of conversations he's he's just not asking those questions in that sense in that once he's he's sorted that this is this is someone he wants to just get rid of and then the way he goes about it you know the fact that they go through the lord's prayer and and it's actually it seems to be Karis that keeps getting distracted and that he keeps having to call back to attention and but i guess what i appreciated through that was on the one hand, you've got the, gosh, what on earth is going to happen to Reagan? 
is she actually going to get out of this? But on the other hand, you do feel like you're in the hands of someone, finally, who does seem to know what they're doing. And like you said, this is happening in the last, what, 40 pages. of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, and it just, it just seemed to take an awfully long time yeah. to get to the point where we've got someone who a, is able to name the devil when they see them, even if it's manifested in a young girl, and then to actually respond to what they're seeing and experiencing. Yep. With, with like, absolute efficiency, right? Like, just go right to the point. Yeah. So what do you think that is about? In preparatory, you know, work with, that we've done for this, we've talked about how this story opens with Father Marin um, in, in Iraq. And, and, and you've, you've called what he, what he has with the devil an ancient enmity. So what do you think is going on? What is the, pro- what is the devil's problem? <laughs> what is, what beef question. does he have with Marin? Well, I, I think in a sense it, again, no, so in the way that we've got deceit running all the way through because the devil's a liar, the other thing that, and this would be a lack thereof in terms of what we were talking about a few episodes ago, there's a lack of ability to forgive. And so once you've insulted in some way this particular figure, clearly that's it. You're going to be hunted for the rest of your life because he's never going to want to lose ever is is the only conclusion I could draw because I was sort of well you know this man you know there's there's hundreds of priests why him but actually he's someone who isn't just defending against the devil so whereas um the average let's say you take the average Christian who goes to church um will say the Lord's Prayer as part of the service will say the creeds um so in a sense there's some defensive work going on we pray deliver us from evil um that kind of thing but i wouldn't say that the average church service on a sunday morning is offensive to the devil in the sense of it's not sort of necessarily other than it's a worship of god and he wouldn't want god worshipped because he wants to worship for himself um but you you do have these particular priests which merrin is one designated by the church to do exorcisms and so consequently, they're then in a very different kind of ball game with the devil in terms of the level of offensive. And so I sort of thought, well, in part, it, it might be because of the role that he has in the church. It seems it might become similar for Carius if he lived. <laughs> but in terms of the personal stuff, I, I, my hunch is it's because he just can't bear the fact that he hasn't beaten this guy. Yep. I think you're right. You know, yeah. Marin is like happily in retirement when they call him out to do this exorcism, right? He's walking around in nature, you know, and they call him, they call specifically for him. So yeah. it's clear that Marin is a successful exorcist and yeah. is, is one of these people who are actively doing battle with the devil. And when, when they need that person, they call him. The brave man, isn't he? Mm-hmm. That's, I came away thinking, my goodness, this is one brave character in this particular novel and it comes at great cost to himself i mean he's ill right yeah he's a a wreck even at the beginning you know so you know you you were talking earlier about the kind of care that reagan might need medical care if she makes it through the exorcism uh marin seems to need medical care from having battled with him right he's got a heart problem you know he's i mean how could we say it you know he seems to have a sort of trauma reaction you yeah know. yeah um, he you know he lives like um with 
you know, the effects of having dealt with the double. Yeah, I think mm. one thing I really appreciated about that whole scene was there was a definite clear warning of don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Even for Karis, you know, right? It's very, the cost yeah. um, was was so beautifully written Yeah, in the, the that sense of personal sacrifice on behalf of another human being who may or may not deserve it and who isn't even, a, you know, they're not her mother. They're not, they didn't know her previous to this happening. Right. It's one of the it's things not Chris the, says. They're not her yeah. uncle. They're not, you yeah. know. Chris says he didn't, they didn't even know her. They never knew her as Reagan. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was one of the things I was thinking about in terms of where is the hope in, because I was, I was reflecting on this it, during the exorcism scene, where's the hope in this novel? Um, because it's making me feel so bleak. And whilst I'm not someone who necessarily wants to always find the bright, shiny side in everything, for me, though, the hope was in the fact that there are these people who are willing to give up, um, actually life for a little girl. Um, which is the kind of goodness that I think he portrayed well in the sense that neither of them think of themselves as heroes, right? They're not sort of coming in saying, oh, we're going to fix this. We're the guys who will solve all of this. Um, they're, they're, they're very sort of unassuming in their salvation of her in, in terms of, of how they're being involved with, you know, as far as they're concerned, the work of God. But they're in the room. Now, unfortunately... Uh you know, Marin doesn't get to finish the exorcism. He, I mean, I hate to say it, but he lost his battle, you know? And I mean, I like what you said about don't try this at home, kids, because I really do think Karis is in the situation where he's the kid, you know, and he's, he's learning, and he has to step in, right? And he doesn't exactly step in and perform the rite of exorcism, but he does step in. So yeah. what do you think about that the scene, it's very brief, right? The moment that Karis sees that Marin is dead and sort of steps in and handles it. Like, how, how would you characterize this as, as different from what Marin does? Like, what does it tell us about Karis? Is his struggle with faith resolved in this act? I wasn't sure where his faith was until the very, very end, to be perfectly honest. But it's almost a case of, but what is faith? In that, is it the fact that he's willing to risk without being actually certain of the outcome? Because it's so easily, it's so easy sometimes, isn't it, to see faith as certainty. So if I believe this, or I say this prayer and I believe it, then that outcome will happen, and that's faith. But I think also another expression of faith is actually not being sure if we believe not being sure if he believes it's the devil necessarily, not being sure if he believes that God will step in um, in the way that he's hoping. But he does it anyway, because what on earth else can you do in that situation other than just run out of the room screaming and not go back? So I sort of liked the way that his faith was portrayed differently, but nonetheless real in the sense that there's still then an outcome um, of that. But I think for me, when I was, when I sort of came away thinking, okay, I think he probably did believe after all, at least in terms of his own faith in, in Jesus. And that was sort of sorted in the fact that he, as much as he's able, gives a confession at, at the very, very end. Mm -hmm. And wants to. And right? wants to. Yeah. And, and you wouldn't, there'd be no reason to do that yeah. if there wasn't some sense of, 
yeah, this is what you do when you die if you're someone who believes the things that no one in no one reading this novel has been sure whether I believe all the way through. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a really, incre- I mean, certainly reading it, I mean, it was an incredibly moving moment. But in terms of what it said about his faith, I, I guess I liked the fact that it, it felt quite gritty and real in that it, it's not always the sure and certain approach. Um, it's the, okay, I maybe I think you're there, God, so I'm just going to try praying this prayer anyway, um, as opposed to absolute certainty I think sometimes it it can feel a little bit too much like it has to be certainty and we have to know before we pray Mm -hmm. and I got the feeling that he was sort of doing the praying before we know it before he knew it Um, and it was in the action of doing the praying that he gets to the knowing as opposed to the other way around yes yes and I mean I feel like the the best definition I've ever heard of courage is that it's being afraid and doing it anyway, and this is highly applicable to faith. Yeah, faith is not knowing and doing the thing anyway. And I feel, in a way, that Karis always has faith, but he's mistaking faith for certainty, and he doesn't have certainty. Yeah, um, which is weird because he's a priest and he should know better, shouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but I feel like um, he. He does the thing that he is supposed to do. And the grittiness, I agree with you. I mean, I feel like what this book does so well is show us real life. You're never ready for real life, no. right? Like, you, you, you're you never ready. You do the thing that you have to do in the moment, and it's you don't take a course on digging a ditch or on uh, helping out in an accident or helping a kid who just broke his leg. You're just there, and you do it. You know, and maybe, you know, you're a person with a job and you do it enough times and you develop, you know, a pattern. But most of us, you know, show up as humans in the world and we just act. Yeah. Marin performs an exorcism. What Karis does is different. And it is, I think, a human dealing with the problem of evil more than a ritual. Yeah. Or maybe more more than a theological one. Yeah. You know, I think he also tricks the devil at the end. Do you think the devil would have really gone in to Karis if he knew Karis was going to throw himself out the window? Absolutely not, no. It's a little bit... It reminded me, actually, when that happened of... um, There was a scene in one of the Gospels where the demon's asked to be thrown over the hill into the pigs because even that's easier. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's that sense of the best way to get rid of this thing (laughs) is is to literally physically get rid of him. But I think this was yet again another attribute that we would see in so many of the sort of stories about the devil, whether we're looking at early Christian texts, medieval texts. It's just always the pride and the arrogance, along with the deceit, the, the sort of markers that you can sort of put together and say, oh yeah, these are what we would say are diabolic, right? The sort of markers of we can tell that this is this character is either the devil or a demon, is yet again overplaying his card. Mm-hmm. Um, and just that sense of self-importance, not thinking for a second that he he will be overcome because he's about to, of course, overcome the priest. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the priest who doesn't really, as far as we've been led to believe throughout the novel, who doesn't really believe in him mm-hmm. and or have that much faith of his own. Yeah, nice. That's interesting because he's sort of... He doesn't do it maliciously or or even consciously, but Karis fakes out the devil with his lack of faith, right? Like he's the devil is 
willing to take a risk at the end, uh, willing to believe that he doesn't have the faith of Marin, and you know, wi- you know, willing to take this opportunity that he's giving him. But I think it's really interesting that what defeats the devil ultimately is not the ritual, not the rite of exorcism, but this trick, right? The rite is not what does it. The you know, is has an exorcism even taken place successfully? Um, I can an exorcism only happen through a rite? Even better question. A very controversial thing for someone who would not use necessarily this rite, but who uses rites obviously all the yeah. time. I think when you're talking about an enemy like the devil, there's there's got to be multiple ways of, of getting rid of it. I mean, if an exorcism is is getting rid of, I'm thinking back to the the sort of official definition language. Yeah, yeah, um, that we opened with. Yeah, yeah. Um, if it's a specific act in which imperative um, appeal to, in, in which imperative appeal to Christ or the Godhead is made in order to rid a person or place of an evil spirit, then I think some kind of exorcism took place, even if that, even if in the actual moment, it's, because it sort of follows a, an appeal to Christ, doesn't it? In the sense that they've already prayed an awful lot of prayers by this point. And I think certainly there's there's very few exorcisms that I have heard of that, I mean, they can go on for weeks, these things. And so I don't think it's necessarily ever going to be as simple as just going in, having a quick um, Lord's Prayer, a few commands, and then this thing goes. Because I think clearly it's got some kind of, it's in there, right? We're talking about weeds that, you're just not going to get rid of with a quick wee bit of yes. weed killer. Like, yes. we're really talking very deep, strong stranglehold of a human. Mm-hmm. And so I'd be confident, but I need to sort of phrase it carefully and think about it carefully. I'd be confident saying, yes, an exorcism took place because of the fact that you see all of the different moves that you'd expect to see. Mm-hmm. Um, in that the, the thing's identified, it's the devil, the priest. You know, Merrin identifies him as that. He names him as that. He prays the prayers. Yes, he fails halfway through and dies, and that's very unfortunate. And then someone else is left. But because that person then dies, and we don't, you don't sort of see this sort of invisible spirit mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. disappearing into the ether anywhere. Right. We're led with the impression that it's finished, and we're certainly left with the impression that it's finished for Reagan. Um, at that moment in time, that they're going to move on with their life. I mean, I sort of want to say I don't know how, because, I mean, you just never recover from that emotionally. I wouldn't have thought. If if an exorcism is the act of this particular thing leaving her, then then clearly that happens. Um, does it happen neatly? No. And, and perhaps not even but by I, the church's rules. Absolutely. But I don't think there's anything to suggest the devil would play by the church's rules. No, which is which is another sort of argument in support of your idea that a team of people helping Reagan would have been better. Right. Like it it wasn't ultimately the right that got rid of the devil. It was, you know, Kara sort of throwing (laughs) what I will call kind of hilariously now a Hail Mary. Right. Like he threw he, he just you know, he just tried something, um, and that's what yeah. got rid of it. And that yeah. should count, right? In the same way that Mary Jo Perrin's voice should count. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, And I think in terms, of, I was thinking about his sort of approach to faith and the way, and you said there's something really interesting about 
you know, he's a priest, isn't he? I think this is part of one of the things that book addresses really well is that priests are people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are, and certainly in the Catholic Church, they are men. These priests are men. And I think what I loved all the way through was the fact that they're not superheroes. And this idea that just because you don a collar, you gain some kind of superhero status is very, very, very dangerous. Yeah. Because and, and that it leads to so many other uh, problems that we have, I think, both in, ch- in the church and society. But um, what I really loved about this was this was a human. And... Uh... And, and a human who was willing to sort of do whatever needed to be done against a supernatural enemy wearing the, you know, the suit of a, another human, right? Yeah. Um, not playing fair, so. What you said, though, Gina, about the tricking the devil. Mm-hmm. So there's a really beautiful debate that goes on in one of the disciplines I work in over what happened on the cross um, with Jesus Christ. And it's just this lovely story um, that we we debate because we don't think it's moral and we don't like it. And when I say we, I'm talking about contemporary theologians. So some of the earlier Christian theologians that I read uh, spend a lot of time parsing out what happened between Christ and the devil on the cross. Um, what's going on on the cross? Is, is Christ acting as some kind of sacrifice or is he beating evil? Um, And there's this one beautiful um, sort of metaphor that gets used by um, Gregory of Nyssa, where he talks about the fish hook and how basically Christ tricked the devil. And so the devil came along. He's got the ultimate. So he thinks win. Christ is on the cross. But ha ha, Christ is resurrected three days later. um, The devil is actually finally beaten. Um, And then, of course, the big debate later on comes in for theologians around, well, does that make God immoral if God is willing to trick the devil? And you've got loads and loads of arguments going on around whether that is or isn't an appropriate thing for God to do. God to be tricking the devil because tricking is wrong. Um, But it's that it was such a resonance. and It made me think, I wonder if Flatty had read that and was thinking about that or had that in mind because in a sense you have this Christ-like figure who's making this huge sacrifice um, and is is dead Absolutely. at the end of the story right yeah. um, and I mean I certainly saw the resonances all the way through yep. even though he's flawed it, I sort of thought you were he was setting him up to be you know this is yeah. someone who is performing a work of salvation and and the resonances were there in terms of certain aspects I thought of the behavior and activity albeit some obviously very big differences. But that final moment, it's not unlike some of the descriptions that happen in the early church as I to mean, what was going on at the yeah, cross. Absolutely, Karis <laughs> is a Christ figure, and Karis sort of enacts a, a trick of his own. Yeah. So if Blatty wanted a novel about faith rather than a horror novel, it mm. seems like Karis was the way to... Karis is his... Uh, is his argument for that, right? Yeah. Karis all the way through, Karis to the end. I agree. Um, and real as well. Yeah. That That's what it left me with, was this is a faith that actually is attainable by most humans. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe not the sacrifice at the end. That's right. obviously asking a lot of the average human being. But I think most of us can imagine faith if we see it alongside doubt. Mm-hmm. So in the way that We've got the very strong binary operation going on between medicine and the church. Yeah. 
what there isn't with faith is the binary operation between faith and doubt. Yeah. So within him, you've got all of it in one person, yeah. which makes it possible, right? Yes, yes. So, so uh, Karis uh, wins the day. Uh, Reagan saved. Will she have problems later in life? Good question. And, uh, and that brings us to the end of discussing the battle. Um, in episode four, we're going to think about what kind of legacy um, this novel has left um, 50 years later. Thanks to Pam Lack and Patrick Flanagan of the Digital Humanities Center at San Diego State University for technical help and Phil Cameron of the Language Resource Center at the University of Michigan for arranging studio time. Thanks to Darren Curtis Music for It's in the Fog, the copyright-free music used in this episode. <laughs>